welcome to the AOL podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message. Three weeks ago, we finished lesson two. It's all about Jesus, right? Jesus is the main thing, no matter what, throughout all of Scripture, and must remain that. The main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing, right? And that's Jesus. And if we lose sight of that, then we're, about, we're following in another gospel, and we don't want to do that. We're looking at the book of Revelation from a premillennial, futurist interpretation viewpoint, which simply means that we believe that most of the book, chapters 4 and beyond, is yet to be fulfilled. And one of the things we learn, learned is that the book of Revelation is given a divine order or chronology. Part of the instructions the Lord gave to John was in verse 19 of chapter 1. He said, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So in lesson two, we covered the first part of those instructions. Write the things which you have seen. John gives us a wonderful description of what he saw. The Lord Jesus Christ, high and lifted up in all of his glory. You can go back and review that if you want to see more about the things that he's seen. Now we're ready to hear and explore the rest of the message of Revelation. It begins with the church, the body of Christ. Jesus loves the church and gave himself for it. The Father gave, gave him this body of believers. And it is for us, Jesus prayed in John 17, 20 through 26. You can read that whole passage, but I want to just take this one out where it says, John 17, 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where, where I am and that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So I was talking to somebody that earlier, you know, the worst thing you can do is think about uh, one of these days we'll be where Jesus is at. We're already in his presence right now. He's in, right in here now. But one of these days he said we will be with him, you know. So uh, that's always a, a good fallback right there to not worry about what, what we see with our eyes of flesh but say one day we'll be with Jesus. In this second section, uh, section of um, Revelation, we're going to see the things that are. We've seen the things which you have seen. Now we're going to see the things which are, which are the church-related things. The church as a, as a body is mentioned 19 times up to chapter 4 and then, then is conspicuous by its absence. Not once that is the church referenced as it has been taken out of the world, removed from the earth. We say it's raptured. Hallelujah. Get an amen about the rapture. <laughs> hey, anybody take a rapture today? I would. Yeah, come get me. Hmm? Yeah, really. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, leading up to that, the Lord Jesus himself sent seven letters to, uh, to seven churches with unique and challenging methods, messages. Letter writing and travel were a common communication in the first and second century Roman Empire. These seven letters from the Lord Jesus were remarkable, if not only because they were direct letters from Christ to the churches, but they were also standouts because they can be understood and applied in three different ways. First, they have a direct message to the local churches of John's day, real people in a real place. But they also, all seven, paint a composite picture of the church in all ages. When we read each one, there's a message for you, and your church today. Lastly, the seven letters also track with the panoramic history of the, of the church, from Pentecost to the second coming, from the upper room to the upper air, each letter representing seven distinct periods of church history. <clears throat> For example, Ephesus represents the apostolic church. Laodicea represents the apostate church. What they tell us about church history is largely fulfilled and now on the record, which makes these chapters 
extraordinary. And I will tell you that not, not all commentators hold to that same belief that this is a panoramic history, but I, take, I consider it very interesting, and I consider it not above and beyond God's ability to, to show us that through, throughout the church age. There's a little uh, chart there, uh, there about where the church and the church age and the time frame uh, that that represents on there. So uh, that kind of gives you an idea of what we're talking about. We talked about Ephesus as the apostolic church. That was the first representation of the time frame. And then Laodicea, the lukewarm church, <clears throat> the present situation that we're in now. So when John wrote down this vision, he delivered each one of the letters to the seven churches in a well-defined and definite format that included these elements. First, Jesus Christ, glorified, was emphasized in addressing each church. And then each letter is addressed to the angel of each church. An angel is a human messenger, likely the pastor of the church. Most of the letters begins with the words, I know your works, and all with implications, meaning personal to each one of us also. He knows us. Don't you know God knows us better than we know ourselves? So let me tell you. Those letters are addressed to us as much, they're just as relevant today as they were uh, 2,000 years ago. And then most start with a word of commendation and then a word of condemnation. The exception is there is no word of condemnation to Smyrna or Philadelphia. Smyrna was the martyr church, and Philadelphia, the missionary church, was getting out, was getting out his word. Uh, Jesus was no, had, has no word of commendation for Laodicea, the apostate church, which seems to represent the time frame that we're living in now, even though we do have, uh, you know, remnants churches all around the world that are uh, that are stick, uh, holding close to the word. And then each number five, each letter ends with the warning: "He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But now let's explore these seven remarkable lessons, messages, and take to heart what the Lord Jesus is saying to them and to us also. Now I want to make a common uh, comment from a, another man that. Dr. Hilton Sutton, who wrote a lot of different books about Revelation, Revelation Revealed. He also wrote a book about the Antichrist. Anyway, this is what he says about the letters. He said, all seven letters to the churches are vitally important to us because they all, they are the, because they are the inspired word of God. Each contains a message for us, either instruction or warnings for us to heed, lest we fall into the same snares as six of the churches. Of course, he's talking about all six of them except Philadelphia. So uh, what he's saying is they're applicable to us just as much today as, he was, as they were today, uh, back then. So, I mean, it's something, you know, we, that's the, and when you, when you get right down to it, most of the time anything that's preached out of Revelation, most of it revolves around the seven churches. You don't hear a whole lot preached uh, about the, after, the, after chapter 3. So that's where we come from in that, in that regard. So our first letter to the church, uh, the first one is the letter, number one, to the church in Ephesus. And, and we titled that one, Love Me Again. So we have two epistles to the Ephesians. One that Paul wrote, and now this one that the Lord Jesus uh, gave through John. And just for your information, the word Ephesus actually means desirable uh, in Greek. Ephesus, called the light of Asia, was a fabulous place where John and Paul lived there in the first century. Paul came to Ephesus on his third missionary journey and sent the word of God out from the school of Tyrannus. Of this experience, Paul wrote, for a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. That's in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. 
Later, John, the apostle of love and the, and the son of thunder, came to Ephesus as a pastor. He was exiled to Patmos, where the Lord gave him the revelation. Then after 10 years of exile and prison, returned to Ephesus. Now, why is he called the apostle of love? Anybody remember? Well, remember in, the, in his gospel, he always addressed himself, or when he was talking about Jesus or talking about himself, he said, the one whom Jesus loved, remember? And he's the one that, and when they were at the Last Supper, and he inclined and laid his, his head on Jesus' chest, you know, so he, he was always addressing that. And it wasn't a, a mode of arrogance or anything like that. He was just trying to say, Jesus loved me, and he was probably saying that in regard to his past sins because the other uh, identifying factor was he was the son of thunder, him and his brother. And there was a story in there, you know, where his mother, the, the mother of these two boys come and ask Jesus, you know, when, and when, you, when you come into your uh, kingdom, will you put my two sons on a throne next to you like that? And, and, and uh, so he said that wasn't for him to choose for that. But anyway, just to say that they were sons of thunder, both of them, uh, says they probably had a pretty uh, ruckus lifestyle before they were chosen by Jesus. So anyway, he went from the son of thunder to the apostle of love. So continuing, as a result of their ministries here, a huge number of people had turned to Christ. Acts 19.10 says that everyone who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Not everyone turned to Christ, but everyone had heard. Even the Roman emperors and the nobility of that day heard the gospel. This was probably the greatest movement of the Spirit of God that never has been duplicated in the history of the church. The gospel had such an impact on Ephesus that four great towers were placed at the harbor entrance, each inscribed with the emblem of the cross and individually dedicated to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One pillar still stands today bearing the symbol of the cross. Other evidences of the gospel impact are the many pagan temples turned into churches. Now, Ephesus was both the religious and commercial center of the world, influencing both East and West, Asia and Europe. Uh, when Paul landed at the harbor in Ephesus, he looked down Harbor, harbor Boulevard, all in white marble. He walked by magnificent buildings and temples. A large market uh, sprawled on his right as he went up the boulevard, and ahead of him on the side of the mountain was a theater that seated 20,000 people. Off to his left sat an amphitheater that welcomed audiences of over 100,000. It hosted destination resorts. It hosted destination resorts where emperors vacationed. So it was a hot spot. It was a place for the, the rich and famous. <clears throat> but to say Ephesus in the first century, anyone immediately thought of the Temple of Diana, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest Greek temple ever constructed, four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. I looked it up, and that... that uh, temple was actually 390 feet long, that's longer than a football field, and 180 feet wide and 60 foot tall when it was built. And it was actually a temple uh, dedicated to Diana, or in the Greek it would have been Artemis, so you had both, uh, but they, they just changed it because it, were under, it was under uh, Roman rule at the time. The temple served, and, and you know, if you want a, a reference, you know, that temple was, I mean, that temple of Diana was 390 feet long. It was 180 feet wide, 60 foot tall. So if you reference how big was Solomon's temple, not counting the courtyard, Solomon's temple was only 90 foot long, 30 foot wide, and 45 foot high. So you can see you could probably put uh, nearly four uh, Solomon temples inside the, the temple of Diana. So it was huge, very big. 
the, and it was, that's why it was called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple served as the Bank of Asia with a vast depository of money. It boasted an art gallery, but behind a purple curtain stood the lewd and crude image of Diana, the goddess of fertility. She, has, she was many-breasted, carried a club in one hand and a trident in the other, and was the most sacred idol of heathenism. Worshipped by more people than any other idol at the time, Diana of Ephesians demanded the basest religious rites of sensuality and the wildest sexual deviances, both excessive and vicious. This was a world before which the church at Ephesus stood as a light in the darkness. Jesus Christ, described here as holding the church's, church in his hand, well under his control, walks up and down judging the seven golden lampstands. Now let's read the passage that, uh, out of Revelation that uh, refers to this church. Revelation 2, verse 1 through 7, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things are talking to John. He said, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree, from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So Jesus has seven words of of uh, commendation for this church in verses 2 and 3. He said, I know your works. He's speaking now to believers. The Lord Jesus never asked the lost wor world for good works. He's talking about believers. But after you've saved, he encourages us with all we can do for him. He encourages us with all we can do for him as spirit-filled believers. And we can see there's, there's some scriptures you can read uh, that he encourages us in good works. And, he, and he, then he tells them, well done. And number two, he says, I know your labor. Labor, unlike just work, implies weariness. The Ephesians church works, works hard but is weary. Can you imagine being in a place where that, that kind of uh, deviant uh, behavior was everywhere? You, 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 it would take all you could do just to stay, stay saved yourself, I guess, you know, and, and, and something like that, plus trying to witness to somebody when all that was going on. It would have, yeah, I'm sure they were weary. Even in their weariness, it, well, it's, and the next one says, I know your patience. Yet even in their weariness, they bear it patiently, the fruit of the Spirit. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Number four, you cannot bear those who are evil. This would not endure. They would not endure evil men. They have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. They have found them liars. They tested everyone who came to Ephesus claiming to be an apostle. They would ask if they had seen the resurrected Christ, if they were liars, they asked him to leave town. The Lord Jesus commanded them for testing people who said they had spoke to, for God. This is needed today more than ever. Sometimes we don't test people enough and nowadays in the situation. We have a lot of people out there speaking, but now are they really from God? you got to be careful. You have persevered and have patience. For Jesus' name's sake, they were bearing the cross. They preached Christ. They believed in the virgin birth of Christ. They, they believed in his deity. They believed in his sacrificial death and resurrection, and they paid a price for their, their belief and have not become weary. 
you can get weary in the work of Christ. But it's tragic if you get weary weary of, of the work of Christ. You get weary in the work, but it's don't don't get weary of the work of Christ. They will they still wanted to work for him. They were just tired. These words of commendation the Lord Jesus gave to the local church at Ephesus also applied to the period of church history between Pentecost and 100 A.D., which the Ephesian church represents. The, they call it the apost, apostolic church, and, and the reason for that is they were closest at that time to the actual apostles. They were still out there in operation, most of them, from that period of time. The last one, of course, was John of the Twelve, and he, he died... Um, I'm not sure exactly the date on there, but uh, he, he was, you know, up, up until nearly 100 A.D. I think it was in the 90s when he was writing this, 96 A.D. when he was writing this uh, actual uh, book of Revelation. Now, he has this one word of condemnation. You have left your first love. That's in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. They had lost that intense and enthusiastic devotion to the person of Christ. The Holy Spirit had brought the believers in Ephesus into an intimate and personal relationship to Jesus Christ. Their spirit, for, uh, their love for the Lord was very important to Christ, and they, were, they weren't yet too far gone, but they were on the way. Their doctrine was on track, but their personal relationship to Jesus Christ was drifting. What should they do about it? The Lord said, remember, remember what it was like when you first came to me. Remember what Jesus meant to you. If you, if you become cold to that memory, stir it up. You can get back to that same place. This is why it's important in the Word, to be in the Word, to be in church, under the Word, and in the Word. So that's what I'm saying. When when pastor says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we need to be in the church. We need to be in the, in the house. We need to be under the Word. We need to be in the Word on your private devotions. We need to be in all of that. And that's... That's why we do those things. And then, it's, and then he said, and repent, in verse 5. Christians need to repent, likely, often, and sincerely. We need to break the shell of self-sufficiency, the crust of conceit, the shield of sophistication, the veneer of vanity, get rid of the fake religious words and looking like, it, like we're uh, some great saint. Repent. Repentance means to turn back to him, and it's the message for all believers of all ages. John Calvin said this. He said, repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Charles Spurgeon quote, quoted this. He said, repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. He also said, sincere repentance is continual. Believers repent until their dying day. Isn't that the truth? It's not just a one-time deal. I mean, how many of you need to repent every day? I'm More than once on me. I mean, every day. And then he finally says, or else, that's right. If we refuse to turn back to God, he says, I will remove your lampstand. Remember the first when we saw the things that were, he was, the, he was portrayed as the one walking through the lampstands, the seven lampstands there. And he, was, he is, of course, the high priest of our um, faith. And so he's walking, doing the priestly duties, and he's, he's trimming the wicks, and he's lighting, he's refreshing the oil. And we talked about it the first time, but that's what he's doing, you know. And so what he says right, right there, if you're not careful, if you don't want to repent, then I can and I will remove your lampstand. Christ is still watching the lamps, and he doesn't mind trimming the wicks or even using the snuffer when a lampstand refuses to reflect, reflect, reflect his light. Then Jesus told them, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There was a man, Nicholas of Antioch, who led a cult that taught 
you taught that you must indulge in sin in order to understand it. Remember, these Ephesians lived their days in front of the temple of Diana. This cult gave themselves over to sensuality, saying such things didn't touch the spirit. The church in Ephesus hated it. A little later on, we'll see that the church in Pergamum tolerated it. Now, I want to we need a little. Uh, we need a little bit more understanding of Nicol, Nicholas of Antioch and the, and the Nicolaitans, where this comes from. And I found a great article from Rick Renner about this. Uh, do you know who Nicholas of Antioch was? Where else he's found in Scripture? Anybody? Do you know? Nicholas of Antioch was one of the seven deacons picked whenever the, 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 the uh, you know, when Stephen was also selected and Philip, and Nicholas of Antioch was picked also. He was one of the seven original deacons. And um, so, uh, and, the, and the name Nicholas actually is a Greek word, two Greek words. It's a compound word which says, it comes from the Greek word nikos, which means to conquer or to subdue, and then laos, which means the people. So his name actually means to conquer or subdue the people, which is an interesting fact about that name. But anyway, he was one of the original uh, uh, deacons uh, in there. So I, w- I don't want to read all of this, but there's some interesting things you, hear, you need to hear about uh, Nicholas. And there's two, two uh, early church leaders in the church named Irenaeus and, and Hippolytus, uh, they were early church leaders who recorded many of the events that occurred in the earliest recorded days of church history. And they said that the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans were the spiritual descendants of Nicholas of Antioch, who had been ordained as a deacon in Acts 6-5. That verse says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So, um, so we know the story about Stephen. He was the one that got stoned, and uh, and when he was stoned, he looked up and seen Jesus standing. But uh, so here's some things about Nicholas uh, that we need to hear that you need to hear about this because this this is going to come up a couple of times, and this is the only place it shows where Nicolaitans is in the seven letters. But you need to hear this because it, it, it directly applies to even us nowadays. But in Acts 6, 5, it tells us that this Nicholas was a proselyte of Antioch. The fact that he was a proselyte tells us that he was not born a Jew, but had converted from paganism to Judaism. And then he experienced a second conversion, this time turning from Judaism to Christianity. From this information, we know these facts about Nicholas of Antioch. He came from paganism and had deep pagan roots very much unlike the other six deacons who came from a pure Hebrew line. Nicholas, Nicholas's pagan background meant that he had previously been immersed in the activities of the occult. He was not afraid of taking an op- opposing position, evidenced by his ability to change religious religions twice. Converting to Judaism would have estranged him from his pagan family and friends. It would seem to indicate that he was not impressed or concerned about the opinions of other people. He was a free thinker and very open to embracing new ideas and concepts. Judaism was very important or very different from the pagan and occult world in which he had been raised. For him to shift from, shift from paganism to Judaism revealed that he was very liberal 
in his thinking, for most pagans were offended by Judaism. He was obviously not afraid to entertain or embrace new ways of thinking. And when he converted to Christ, it was at least the second time he had converted from one religion to another. We don't know it or how many times he shifted from form, one form of paganism to another before he came, became a Jewish, Jewish proselyte. His ability to easily change religions, uh, religious hats implies that he was not afraid to switch direction in midstream and go a totally different direction. According to writings of the early church leaders, Nicholas taught a doctrine of compromise, implying that total separation between Christianity and the practice of occult paganism was not essential. Did you hear what I said? Implying that the total separation between Christianity and the practice of occult paganism was not essential. Anybody say Halloween? Okay, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have brought that up. Sometimes you have to bring out the truth, right? So, anyway, that's, I thought that was an interesting side note there. I wanted to get that in. But, uh, but anyway, he, was, uh, he, that, that's, he comes from a line where he was the first de- one of the first deacons. So, anyway, the next uh, part of that scripture, he says, who, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is asking, are you listening? Do you hear this warning? See, not everyone can hear the word of God. They may register the audible sound, but they miss the message. The Lord Jesus prompts this phrase to, to alert dull ears and prompt spiritual perception. He uses this phrase a lot in the Gospels. You remember when Jesus, a lot of times he was talking in the parables. He, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And, you know, so he, he, he's, he's trying to get your attention. Listen to what the Spirit, the teacher of the church, is saying. He who has an ear, let him hear. You know, and, and uh, uh, you have to come. One of the comments that I read was, "You have to come with ears open and ready to receive, and not reject when you come to church." Some of what you hear would be hard to accept, but you can't pick and choose the truth. The Spirit of God helps you to hear and receive. If you come to church and you hear a strong word and it never changes you, then you're not hearing. You get that? You're not hearing. If, you're not, if it's not changing, the Word of God's going to change it if you're here, you're, but don't reject it. So, and so what he's saying right there is what he says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Several things we need to stress here. First, this phrase in verse 7 is repeated to all seven churches. It's important when the Lord says anything, but when he, when he repeats it seven times, we know he's trying to get our attention. Secondly, he's telling us that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is, is the power source and the giver of truth. Holy Spirit is taken for granted in a lot of churches today and seems to be relegated to a lesser role than the Father and the Son. This should not be the case. Jesus explained in the Gospel of John what the role of the Holy Spirit would be after he departed. You can read the whole passage at uh, John 16, 5 through 15, and John 15, uh, 26. But this passage says what we need to hear for now. In John 16, 13, it says, However, when he... The spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. Thirdly, that's, that's the part when I said, you know, the Holy Spirit. You know, if you want to know more about the Holy Spirit and the, his role, uh, go back and, and look at the Defending the Faith lesson number three, and it defines, it shows what, the, what uh, actually uh, he's part of the Trinity, and it tells you what we, 
what we believe, what we should be believing about the Trinity and about the role of the Holy Spirit and how he fits into the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, thirdly, uh, in this passage, we can't accomplish anything on our fleshly efforts that is worthwhile. It must be accomplished by the Spirit of God working through us. Read Galatians 5, 16 through 25 to see how to live under the control of the Holy Spirit. I encourage you to highlight that and read it later. You, you need to read it. So, as a genuine believer, you can, over, you can overcome this through the blood of the Lamb. In fact, the overcomers will eat of the tree of life. That's what it said in that passage. Remember in the Garden of Eden, that man was forget, forbidden to eat of the tree of life. That's when that was after sin, uh, not before sin. But in, but in heaven, the no trespassing sign will be taken down, and we will all have the privilege of eating the tree of life, from the tree of life. We are going to live as we have never lived before in God's new garden. The tree of life also shows up four times in the Proverbs, and it's used here to help us understand why it's in Genesis and Revelation. Solomon calls trees of life wisdom. And here's four passages that you can, you can see that. From righteousness, satisfied hope, wholesome uh, speech, and uh, uh, I think that was all of them, and wisdom. Proverbs 3.18 says, She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. We're talking about wisdom. And Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. And Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. That's satisfied hope. And then Proverbs 15.4 says, A wholesome or healing tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So this was the hope of the church of Ephesus, the apostolic church, the church at its best. So letter number two goes to the church in Smyrna. So we read that passage from Revelation 2, verse 8 through 11. It's called the persecuted church, Smyrna is. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the, says the first and the last who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation, tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Sometimes when you see that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, it's okay to go back and read it again and again and again until you get it, until your ears are opened up and your spirit, your spiritual ears are opened up. So when he says it seven times, it's got to be important. Be fearful and faithful to death. That's the message Jesus Christ writes to the young church in Smyrna, whose name ironically, when translated into Hebrew, means myrrh, a resin that becomes beautifully fragrant when it's crushed. The city of Smyrna still exists today, known as Izmir. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, Pergamum were the royal cities and competed with each other for attention. Smyrna was the great commercial center, Ephesus was the political center, and Pergamum was the religious center. Smyrna was one of the loveliest cities of Asia, called the crown of all Asia. Its Acropolis sits on Mount Pagos. Though already ancient, Alexander the Great developed Smyrna into the beautiful city 
uh, that it became. The city was majestic with noble buildings and beautiful temples to Zeus, to Diana, to Aphrodite, to Apollos, to Apollo and to Asclepius. Uh, Smyrna was the home to a theater and music center. In its stadium, Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna and student of the Apostle John was martyred, burned alive in 155 AD. Yes, Smyrna has seen its suffering. In his letter, the Lord Jesus said he knew all about it and he knew their poverty. Their experience reflects the church history period from about 100 A.D. to approximately 314 A.D., from the death of the Apostle John to the Edict of Toleration by Constantine, which was given in 313 A.D. and ended the persecution of Christians, not only as Smyrna, not only in Smyrna, but in all over the Roman Empire. See, Constantine became uh, the uh, emperor of, of Roman Empire at that time, but he was supposedly created. Uh, um, converted into Christianity, maybe a perverted Christianity at the time, but it, he was. But anyway, he did a, 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 uh, uh, put this edict of toleration out where the persecution ended. So everything the Lord Jesus says to, to the church at Smyrna is praise. To these brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord described himself as the first and the last who was dead and came alive. Nothing came before Christ, and there would be nothing to follow him. He has the final statement of all he has the final statement of all things. These dear persecuted believers need to know he was in charge, and this persecution was in the planning and purpose of God. So the part of that scripture says who was dead and came to life has a real message for martyrs, and that's what this is this is the church of martyrs. His experience with death identified him with five with the five million who were martyred during this period of church history. But Jesus said he was triumphant over death and can save to the uttermost those who are enduring uh, persecution and martyrdom. And then he says, I can see your pain and poverty, he said to them. I know your suffering. The early church was made up largely of, of the poorer classes, slaves, ex-slaves, runaway slaves, freed slaves, poor people. When the wealthy believed in Christ, their property was confiscated because of their faith. But they were blessed with all, with all spiritual blessings. When Jesus wrote to the rich church in Laodicea, he said, you think you are rich, but you are really poor and you don't know it. But those who were poor materially, he said, you're rich. Verse 9 says, some in Smyrna claimed to be good Jews, but in fact belonged to Satan's crowd. Smyrna was a city of many cultures in which many Jews had discarded their belief in the Old Testament. They said they were Jews, but they weren't God's people. They might have been proselytes like uh, Nicholas of Antioch was. For the second time in Revelation, Jesus comforted his own while they were being persecuted with, do not fear any of those things, in verse 10. History tells us that thousands went to their death singing praises to God. Of course, Jesus labeled Satan as being responsible for the suffering of the saints in Smyrna. Ten Roman emperors served as Satan's tool during ten intense periods of persecution. He's talking about that time frame from 100 A.D. to 314 A.D., there about the the ten, popes, uh, ten uh, Roman emperors uh, serving during that time. The Lord Jesus knew the root of problem, uh, trouble. Even so, the Lord said, be faithful until death, and they were. To these martyrs, Jesus promises the crown of life. That would have resonated with these believers who lived in Smyrna, the crown city. Their crown of life was from the Lord will be eternal. The Lord has special crowns waiting for those who suffer. If you are suffering right now and have wondered if he cares, he has something special for you in eternity. 
You who have suffered will something will get something no one else will be getting. See that in James one twelve, where he says, "Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him." And I've, I've put several passages there. If you want to see what kind of crowns will be available to you, there's the crown of the imperishable crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and the crown of life. You can find those in those scriptures. I encourage you to go back and read those if you're interested on there. But uh, uh, read it, and, and you'll find out what those are. So he's talking about that's just part of your reward. And one day those crowns will be cast down before the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, because that's who, who deserves all of it. Finally, Jesus ends his message to Smyrna with a favorite expression, he who has an ear, let him hear. Pay attention. Have you heard him today? Is he speaking to you today? Letter number three to the church in Pergamum. Revelation 2, starting with verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas uh, was, my faith, was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have, the, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit <clears throat> sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against, against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I've got to get a drink of water. So a little over 250 years after Jesus left the earth, the world at large moved away from believing in Jesus Christ. You can call this season Paganism Unlimited. Jesus had a message for the local church at Pergamon also for us today. Now he's still talking about the current churches and, and Pergamon or Pergamos, however you want to say it, the, was, uh, was still a current church. The city of Pergamon is, is 55 miles north of Smyrna, inland a few miles from the Aegean coast. The Acropolis still stands on top of the, of the mountain. The ruins of the great temples and the city can be seen for miles. At the time, it was the most famous city of Asia, certainly the most royal. In the winter, when the Rome got cold, Caesar Augustus would vacation in, his, in this beautiful area. As a fortified stronghold, it could withstand the enemy. Built on the cliffs overlooking the Caicos River uh, uh, Valley, Pergamon sat on a strategic location between two rivers, that led to the Aegean coast. Now, not only did Pergamon boast great temples, but it also had the greatest library of the pagan world. In fact, the parchment, uh, Pergamina, used in books is named after that city. Mark Antony gave his girlfriend, Cleopatra, this library, and she lugged it off to Alexandria, Egypt. 
It was considered the greatest library the world had ever seen and originally came from Pergamum. A fun fact you need to know about Cleopatra, she wasn't just beautiful, like the movies portray her and everything like that, but she was smart. She spoke 12 languages, including Hebrew. So I'm sure this library was a very great gift for her because she had all kinds of things to read. So she was a smart woman, a, a very learned woman. Anyway, just thought you'd be interested. Why would anybody want to give a gift of a library to somebody? Well, she loved it because she could speak 12 languages. This third letter was addressed, like, like the others, to the angel or messenger of the church, the pastor. Since Pergamon was the center of false religion, specifically emperor worship, the only way it could be reached would be by the word of God, a sharp sword with two edges that was able to divide truth from error. The Lord commends this church for three specific things. First, he takes note of their circumstances. He knew that they were living in a difficult place. Did you know the Lord takes notes of your circumstances too? He does. They lived in Satan's headquarters. Satan isn't in hell today. Some people say, wish Satan would go back to hell. He's not there yet, but one day he will be. Though he will be later, as we'll see in chapter 20, he is loose and the prince of this world, controlling kingdoms and going up and down the earth as a roaring lion, hunting and whoever he can devour. You can see that in Peter, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be diligent, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I believe he's working overtime in the Middle East right now, between the Gaza and Israel, so he's, he's at work. For sure. Pergamum reveals religion as big business. It boasted the temples of Athena, Caesar Augustus, Hadrian, the altar to Zeus, the temple of Dionysius, and the god Asclepios, which is in addition to being a temple, was also a world-renowned hospital of the ancient world. For 700 years, people went to it from all over the world for healing. Good men used medicine there, but basically it was a satanic stronghold. Now, um, I want to say something about the about this, uh, where it says the altar to Zeus. That was called. Uh, I think it says in the in the scripture, that's where Satan's uh, throne is, right? Seat of Satan. So where Satan's throne is, that's in verse thirteen. The altar of Zeus. There's some things here about that that you need to hear because it's very interesting, and, I, and it's a rabbit trail. But I, I'm I'm, positive, I'm glad I'm I'm sure you'll be glad to to know this information. Y'all y'all like information, right? You like to learn things, right? All right. So this altar called the Satan's throne is actually uh, built on one of the terraces of the Acropolis. The Acropolis in 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 that area, when, when you said the Acropolis, a lot of towns had what they called an Acropolis. It was a high elevation like a mesa, and that's where they built all the strongholds. That's where they built the temples. The, the, the rich people or the emperors and people like that had their houses up there, and so it was a, it was a large, uh, flat, uh, mesa-type uh, mountain, if you want to say that. So it was built on one of the terraces of the Acropolis of, that, of, of Pergamon. It was built in the second century before Christ, so this 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 uh, this uh, altar to Zeus, or Satan's throne, as it became known, uh, was 116 foot wide, is 109 foot deep, and its stairway was six, 60 foot five, 65 foot wide. So it was a huge, huge altar, uh, and it was so. Um, 
I want to get ahead of myself down here. But anyway, I won't because this is, this is what you need to know about Pergamum and this altar. This altar, was uh, it, it fell into, over the years, it fell into disrepair. And, of course, the, the, the uh, temple and the area that it was around, it all collapsed around. And so it was many, many times, you know, that was uh, 2,000 years ago. So it fell in disrepair. Well, a German ar uh, archaeologist started digging it up in, uh, in, the 18, in 1871. That's when Germany become, actually became the nation of Germany. Anyway, he was a German archaeologist. He started digging up this altar of uh, Zeus, uh, the altar of uh, Satan's throne. And so he, he dug it up uh, from 1871. It took him to 1878 to completely dig it up. And all the pieces, they moved to Berlin, Germany. Uh, so it was moved to Germany, uh, excavated in 1878, moved to Germany, Berlin. And so by... They, and they started reconstructing it. It was very elaborate because it had a lot of carvings around the what they call the freeze work around the top of it. And it showed it, actually what is carved into the side of that was actually uh, uh, kind of scenes of, of, the, of the Olympians uh, battling uh, the, the gods or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was very, very much uh, a, a beautiful structure like that as far as the artwork that goes on there. So anyway, it took him... Uh, so it went to, in 1978, or 1878, it was co finally completed as far as the excavation, and it was all moved to Germany, and they started assembling it, putting it together. And it was put together, finally, uh, it was constructed and put together, and, and it was so huge that they had to build a, a museum around it. They built the own, the, the museum called the Museum of Pergamum. It was so huge that they built that whole the structure around uh, the altar. This was completed in 1889. Know anything else significant that happened in 1889? I know you don't because, I mean, you would have had to know all this thing. But anyway, I'll tell you. I'm going to tell you. 1889 was the birth of uh, Adolf Hitler. You get an A. <laughs> all right. You know the story. I'm telling it again. Anyway, 1889, it was built on, on the same day of birth, birth of Hitler. So when Hitler rose to power in Germany in the, after World War I and in the 1930s, he asked for a pedestal or platform to speak from when he was rising up in power. And what, he, and he, and he, what, it, what they decided, the architect that was going to do it, suggested to him that uh, to use this structure like the, the seat of Satan or the, uh, the throne of Satan. So they actually built uh, one that was similar to that very uh, throne of, of Satan for him to speak from. And it was set up in Nuremberg. The, the story I read was it set up in Nuremberg, Germany. And this is where he announced, supposedly announced the final solution, what he was going to do with the Jews. So you can see this. there really is a spiritual concept, but when it says the, the throne of Satan, wherever that throne moves, it Satan moves his throne from time to time. During the Babylonian captivity, in Nebuchadnezzar, at one time he had the throne in, in Babylon. And then it was moved back. Uh, it, it was it become uh, Pergamum at one time, and then now it now that whole excavation was moved. And so you know how Satan was involved in the in the slaughter of six million Jews around the world because of as a result of this. So it all you know falls uh, falls in place right there. So there is a there is a spiritual background and a spiritual thing going on right there. When he announced the final solution was what what they were going to do, and of course that become 
the beginning of the Holocaust and where they, just, they slaughtered uh, millions and millions of Jews all around the world. So I just, when it, when it says, when you think about that, next time you read that, that it was the throne of Satan, understand that that, that, is, a, that is a spiritual uh, uh, dynasty, I guess you could say, that continues on into this day with Satan. Who knows where it's going to be set up the next time? Ma'am? It's still there. No, it's still in the, the the whole structure is still there, the one that they reconstructed. Actually, they said it was in in Germany and Berlin, and then after the war, when the, when the wall was put up dividing Berlin, of course, the Russians got it, and they said for a time it was moved from, um, while communist rule was building up, you know, after, after the uh, war, that it actually was moved to Moscow for, I think, either Moscow or Leningrad, but then it ended up being moved back to Germany, and because Germany was a, was a, one of the central powers of the of the European Union, so understand this: if the if the throne of Satan is behind the European Union, what does that tell us? Um, we won't we won't go there this time. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> That's just right. Uh, at, at, at this time, uh, you know, so we know uh, what the background, just, it's just the backstory of what the altar to Zeus actually was. It was the, uh, that, that part of, uh, right there. And another word of commendation Jesus gave to the believers at Pergamon was that he saw where they, that they were faithful in defending his deity. The church in Pergamon represents a period in church history from approximately 314 to 590 A.D., that produced great giants of faith like Athanasius from North Africa who defended the deity of Christ and Augustine who answered the heresy that denied original sin and salvation by grace and grace alone. These two giants stood unshakably for the doctrine, the great doctrines of faith. So that's just a side note to say during that period of time that the church of Pergamum actually represents, these great uh, church leaders were uh, doing these things for the church. And we, there's a whole story behind that, but won't go into that right now. but So now, two things the Lord condemns. Maybe one more story I need to get before. There is. When it says, and up in that one paragraph where I read, the altar to Zeus, the temple of Dionysius, and the god of Asclepios. So this god of Asclepios, he's supposed to be the god of healing. Uh, let me read this to you. This temple was erected in Pergamum, You'll love this. Anybody like to, any ladies like to go to the spa and get a spa treatment every once in a while? You'll love this because this is, this Pergamum, was, <laughs> Pergamum was a time or place where they called it uh, the, uh, the, if you go to what they called an Asclepion, which was a kind of a spa or, or a, a place where you could go if you were sick and he, needed healing. But anyway, the temple was erected in Pergamum to these false gods had, had multiple purposes. One of the purposes would be comparable to a modern-day hospital, only this hospital had its own twists. Anyone who had a terminal illness was not allowed to be present, as no death could be there. Matter of fact, in a deal I read from Rick Renner, he said that there was actually a, a, a sign over the entrance to this Asclepion or this hospital was, said that death was not allowed. So if you had a terminal illness, you couldn't go there. And that's, that's important because they were healing people. They didn't want somebody that had something that they were going to die from because that would ruin their reputation for one thing. But anyway, so as no death could be there, when people would come, listen to this. You'll love it. 
They were given a sedative and sent to a de designated area to sleep. This is in the, the, the God of Asclepius in this hospital that they had right there. And uh, when people, they give them a sedative and sent to a designated area to sleep. And while sleeping, non-poisonous snakes were released to slither over the sleeping individuals. If a snake slithered on you while sleeping, it was seen as a divine sign that healing would come. And dreams would come to those who were sleeping, revealing the needed diagnosis and remedy to their sickness. What the people did not realize, it was demons that were speaking to these people. So... <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? So you see now one of the things you need to understand, Asclepius. There's a there's what they call the rod. I don't know how many of you know this. Maybe if you work in the medical field or has studied and gone to school for medical, but there's what they call the rod of Asclepius. It's a lot of the signs you see on medical facilities. It's got the rod staff with the snake winding around it. That's called the rod of Asclepius. So that's symbol symbolic of this god of Asclepios, you know, and then it's, of course, on the side of uh, most uh, first responder vehicles, it's in this three or three cross, cross, you know, and then there's that rod with that snake around it, uh, and it's, so it's a medical emblem, and I thought to myself, you know, we see that medical emblem everywhere we go, whether it may be a pharmacy, it may be a doctor, it may be a hospital or something like that, and I'm thinking, you know, this was a place for healing and everything like that, and I thought to myself, Maybe we spend too much time work. Uh, maybe we spend too much time worshiping at the altar of Asclepios instead of the altar of Jesus Christ, our healer. You know, think about that for a second. I, I mean, that really hit me like that. You know, when, you know, we we got we place our faith in the doctors, but we need to place our faith in Jesus Christ, our healer. And I think we, you know, if we did that, so we've kind of given it up. I, just just a side thought there. Sometimes I get these weird thoughts, <clears throat> but that's not too weird. Anyway, so, okay, one other side trip. The next one was um, in the same, in that verse 13, I know your works and where you dwells, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. You need, uh, this should have went along with the story about Satan's throne. This throne this uh, uh, altar of Zeus, Antipas was the, actually the first bishop of Pergamum. He was assigned that location by John, according to what I've read. And so he was the bishop of, of, uh, of Pergamum. And he was a man. He was a powerful, powerful saint. He was going through the town. And he was casting out demons. This was a place that was full of demonic activity. And he was casting out demons right and left. And the people, the doctors, all these people that were part of this Asclepios um, cult, they didn't like it because they were taken away from his their business, and so they ganged up on him. They they made him go before uh, the local authorities and said, "This man is not worshiping Caesar; he's worshiping his God." And so they they told uh, Antipas, he said, "Okay, you have a chance to redeem yourself here." He said, "If you will burn incense and drink wine to and worship." Caesar, uh, the Caesar of that day, whoever it was, was. He said, "We will, we will uh, let you go," but he wouldn't do that. He stood strong in his faith, and so he was martyred as a result of that. And the way they martyred him, at the top of this altar of Zeus, there was a there was a bronze bull, and they put him in this bronze bull 
with his head stuck him in the, up in the head of the bull. And, they, of course, they bound him. And then they built a fire underneath this bull and roasted him alive in this bull. I mean, talk about savage and pagan. and It's crazy. And then, of course, they said when they did that to people, people screaming, it would resonate through the bull's head, and people would actually think the bull come alive because words were coming out of there, you know. So, I mean, they were, they were, they were a savage bunch of people. Uh, worse, I mean, kind of like some of the terrorists we see on TV. Anyway, but so he was, he was the bold witness for Christ, and he was burned alive or roasted alive inside that. Uh, so it was a, the throne of, of Zeus was, uh, the throne of Satan was a terrible thing. So let's finish up. The church in Pergamum represents a period, or, or skip that. Next paragraph. Now the two things the Lord condemns in Pergamum church are also, are also doctrine, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of Nicolaitans. The doctrine of Balaam in verse 14 is different from the era of Balaam when ba- Balaam taught, thought God would curse Israel because they were sinners. It's also different from the way of Balaam in 2 Peter 2.15, which was covetousness. This teaching of Balaam the Lord condemns is the way Israel intermarried with Moabite women that opened the door of Israel to idolatry and fornication. Y'all go back and read the story. Um, I believe that is in um, uh, Numbers. I forgot to get the... But anyway, it's in a, it's part of Numbers uh, in the Old Testament. Go back and read that uh, story about um, Balaam and Balak, and you'll see the whole thrust of what we're talking about right there. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans we saw earlier. The church at Ephesus hated it, but here in Pergamum, some didn't think it was so bad. It allowed great sensuality in the church and returned religious rituals to the clergy, ignoring that we're all ignoring that we are all on equal footing at the cross at the cross Christ says he hates it Jesus Christ hates as well as loves let's be careful not to indulge in the things he hates you can read proverbs 6 16 through 19 for what other things that God hates and go back and read those things he hates the haughty eyes he hates a lying tongue anyway there are seven things that he hates you need to go back and read that but like it says let's be careful not to indulge in the things he hates more than anything, Jesus Christ, Christ hates sin. The only cure for that in our lives is to repent, literally. Change your mind. And if we admit our sins, calling them out as God sees them, God will be faithful to forgive us of these sins and purge us of all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9, it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If the church at Pergamum would not repent, the Lord said he would fight against them with the sword of his mouth, the word of God. What a mistake if we think the church has the authority to decide right and wrong. God's already decided that. We just need to follow through with what he's done. There's some churches right now trying to decide on their own what's right and wrong. We've seen that in the news here lately. The true, true church is made up of believers in Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. We are to be lights in this dark world, identifying first with the person of Jesus Christ, and to recognize not the church, but the word of God as our authority. Using his favorite expression, Jesus says, He who has near, let him hear. Listen, wake up. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. This is for genuine Christians today, too. Never are we to overcome on our own efforts or works, but we overcome by Jesus' shed blood for us. We don't win the victory. He wins it for us. To him who overcomes, Jesus says, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one else except him who receives it. 
Hidden manna speaks of his own body, crucified for us as, as he is revealed in the word of God. In fact, uh, Jesus said he himself was the bread. You read that in G, uh, John 6, 32 through 35. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gave, gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He, he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. If we want to mature in our relationship with Christ, we must feed on him. He is the word, and we need this, our daily bread, to sustain our life in Christ. And then in verse 17, the last half of that, he says, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. Jesus says he will give the overcomers a white stone with a new name written on it. In ancient times, the people of Asia Minor, to whom John was writing, had a custom of giving to intimate friends a tessera, a cube or rectangular block of stone or ivory with words or symbols engraved on it. It was a secret, private gift. Some writers say it was given to someone who had earned the king's favor, such as victorious athlete or a conquering general. This stone then served as a pass key allowing that person to approach the king. The idea of favor and access to the king also fits well with the proposed meaning of the hidden manna. Jesus said he is going to give each of his, uh, each of his own a stone with a new name engraved on it, perhaps a new name for him that relates something different to each one of us. It will be his personal and intimate name to each of us. What a precious gift that will be. This is what it means to have a personal relationship with him. Amen? Amen. How many of you want that personal white stone one day? All right. Did y'all get anything out of that tonight? I'm sorry about so many rabbit trails, but it was good stuff, I think. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for everything that we learned from your word. We thank you for the history of the word and all the things it reveals to us. And we thank you, Father, that we can, we can uh, look at this and see uh, the things that are going on, what's, why, why it went this way, and and what period of time that we're living in, and uh, the encouragement that we have that we're knowing in, that we know that we're living in the last days, and that you're coming soon. And we, Father, we just thank you for that. We thank you that we can take comfort in that, and not worry, not be afraid, but to know that you're on the throne, you're in control, and that things will work out just as you have planned, and not as man has planned. So we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for showing us the way, showing us all the things that we need all the things that we do, and as we take these things and as we receive your word, as we hear what you are saying to us, help us, Lord, to apply it each, each and every one of us to our daily life, to learn from it, to do the things, to repent where we need to repent on a daily basis, and to walk in right position before, before you in everything that we do. We praise you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms, to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app and to choose Arena of Life as your church. And a special thanks to those who make a difference by giving generously. You help us change lives and produce weekly content like this that reaches the world. 
If you're interested in partnering with us, you can give by clicking the link in our bio through the website arenaoflifechurch.org or through the Church Center app. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.